the inspired psalmist. We don't know who it is. Some have speculated Isaiah because of similar language that Isaiah uses. Some have speculated King Hezekiah. We don't know. It says the sons of Korah. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her. When morning dawns, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Father, we find great comfort in this inspired text this morning and we need it we are suffering this week our hearts are yearning for home we are crying come Lord Jesus Maranatha and until he comes Lord we need grace and mercy to help In a needy time. And this is that needy time. We pray that this text would be a means of grace to each of us this morning. Protect me from getting in the way of this glorious passage. I pray, Lord, that this text would meet each person here at their point of need. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. You know, we all love those happily ever after stories, those fairy tales where beauty kisses the beast and the beast becomes king. Or Cinderella gets the glass slipper and then meets and marries Prince Charming. Or Little Red, Red Riding Hood is delivered from The deceiving, dangerous wolf. Where dragons are slayed and are cast into the outer darkness. Never to kill, steal, and destroy again. You know, stories like that fill our minds. They they fill our imaginations with visions of perfect paradise. You know, those happy ever after stories... Ring true 
because they echo the happy ever after story that is true. The one that we are hardwired for. But for now, we are caught within the broken but hopeful middle chapters of that story. This story, even though it takes us through many toils, dangers, and snares, has a final and most glorious chapter, doesn't it? It's already been written, but one that has not yet been fully realized, even though it has been realized in part through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that final chapter that we long for is different from the rest of the middle chapters of the story in which we currently live. Because those middle chapters of the story, as we all know, are filled with, as Revelation 21 says, tears, death, mourning, crying, and pain. But in that final chapter, death will be no more. Tears and suffering will be no more. The former things will pass away once and for all. We know that because that story has entered time and space through the person and work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the grave. Indeed, the story that we are living inside of right now, even in the midst of the dangers, toils, and snares, the one in which all other stories are mere shadows, is the happy ever after story of the ages. And we see that story in miniature in Psalm 46. Now, the Psalm's context is likely the overthrow of Sennacherib and the Assyrian army. We could show you this, we don't have time to, but the language that is used here is used in Isaiah where he is speaking of that very situation. Although Hezekiah, who was the king at that time, the king of Judah, and a faithful king, a man who was a man of faith, like his grandfather David. But at, at the time, he was a vassal of Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria, which means he had to, to pay tribute money to Sennacherib for protection. Protection from other nations, but protection from Assyria itself. And Hezekiah determined that was not showing faith in God. And so he rebelled. And the Assyrians came sweeping like a tsunami to Jerusalem to destroy Hezekiah and the Jews. Jerusalem was surrounded, and Sennacherib famously boasted that he had shut up Hezekiah like a caged bird. It was an impossible situation. Twenty years earlier, the same thing had happened with Sennacherib's predecessor with the Assyrians. 
They had gone into the northern kingdom of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and they had depopulated the northern kingdom. That was 722 B.C. Now it's 701 B.C., and it looks like the same thing's going to happen to Judah. But Hezekiah, you can read this in Isaiah 36. You can read it in 2 Kings 18 and 19. Hezekiah, being the man of faith that he was, cried out to God. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, said these words, Do not be afraid. I will make him fall by the sword. And that night, the angel of the Lord destroyed 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. And that, this psalm, Psalm 46, is likely a commemoration of that glorious victory and event. So remarkable was the deliverance that believers have turned instinctively to Psalm 46 whenever disaster comes and all things seem hopeless. Now, this psalm is divided into three stanzas. Each stanza, each part of the psalm concludes with the word Selah. We don't know exactly what Selah means, but many speculate that it just means to pause, to reflect, contemplate, meditate on what you just read. And the most prominent message of each of these three stanzas is this. The Lord God is with us. The Lord God is with us. With us in a metaphorical sense, as we'll see, as our refuge, as our life-giving river, as our ruler. We see, first of all, that he is with us as our refuge in verses 1 to 3. Look with me in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This is a theological confession. The psalmist is confessing something that is true about the true and living God. And immediately the psalmist looks to God for help in two ways. First of all, we see he is a refuge in which we can flee. Secondly, he is a very present help in times of trouble. Trouble being the middle chapters of our happy ever after story. He is our strength, the psalmist writes. You know, often God shields us from trouble so that it can be said, for instance, as the psalmist says in Psalm 91, a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. In such times, God is our fortress. We don't even know the numerous, countless times each day that he protects us. From calamity. We take those things for granted. We don't even see them. Having a safe place to run though. Is a universal need. For all God's creatures. Including 
his image bearers. We all remember those childhood games, don't we? In which there was a, a place that you ran to that was the safe place. No one could tag you out. You were safe there from your pursuers, from your opponents. Out there was danger. But here, it may have been a, a circle in the sand. Here was the refuge. Here was the safe place. And what that safe place meant was security. It was a refuge. In the scriptures, the living God is the refuge. In fact, the psalmist, when you count the various metaphors that are used, the psalmist gives some 50 references to drive home that point that God and only God is our refuge. He uses metaphors like God is our rock. God is our strong tower. He has wings that we hide under. He is our fortress. We'll see that in our passage today. And so he's our refuge. And oftentimes as our refuge, he protects us from calamity. But there are other times that we are afflicted and we do suffer. As I look out across this room, so many stories of suffering cross my mind as I know God's people at Fisherville have suffered. And in those times, we learned that God is our very present help in times of trouble. That's what Psalm 46.1 tells us. And we need to hear this. Because the more troubled we are, the more alone we feel. But this is where the word of God must override our feelings. Because we can't trust our feelings. We can't trust our emotions. They are fallen and finite. When there is a conflict between our sensory experience... And the promises of God, the promises of God must win out. And we see the potential for conflict in verses 2 and 3. Look with me in verses 2 and 3. Therefore, in light of the reality, the truth that God is our refuge, that God is our strength, our very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, I think that this is pointing forward to the day of ultimate judgment, but I also think that it's referring to the days of trouble that we all have and will experience in the middle chapters of the story. This is metaphorical language. Uh, this metaphor represents everything that can and does go wrong in the middle chapters of our happy ever after story. 
I mean, it couldn't be more frightening if you read this. This is a, this is a cosmic tsunami. The mountains falling into the sea. It represents physical, material, emotional, relational, family, upheaval. It's a metaphor for all these things. So don't even begin to think that the psalm doesn't understand your painful circumstances. The psalmist is depicting a world as if it's been decreated. As if it's been unmade. This is the unmaking of day three of creation. There's a lot of suffering in this room today. It's been loss of life. It's been family crises. Marriage struggles, parenting pains, a lot of pain and suffering in this room. And the psalmist says, even in all this, God is our refuge. God is our strength, our very present help in time of trouble. He is our refuge. Indeed, he's also our life-giving river. Look with me in verses 4 to 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, we saw in Philippians 3 that the city of God represents the people of God. Now, in that day, it was Jerusalem, the capital city where God's covenantal presence dwelled. It points forward to the new Jerusalem. But the city of God today is where God dwells with his people through his son Jesus Christ, by his spirit, in what he calls, Paul calls, the temple, the church. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Now, this is likely referring to the time when we are assaulted. Because in the ancient Near East, that's when kingdoms went to war. When morning dawns. So as soon as the morning dawns, there's grace. There's grace. His mercies are new every morning. When the morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now a little background here. Knowing that the Assyrian army was going to eventually attack Jerusalem. And in that day, what... Nations would do was seek to destroy the water source. If you, if you destroy the water source of a capital city, you won the battle. You won the war. Hezekiah knew that. He was a good king. 
And he recognized that Jerusalem would need a sure water source, an unfailing water source. And so the Gihon Spring was Jerusalem's most ancient water supply. You can go there today and and see that. And yet it was subject to attack. And so what Hezekiah did, and you can read this in the scriptures. 2 Chronicles 32 speaks about this. Hezekiah diverted the Gihon Spring through this underground tunnel. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel today. If you go to Israel, you will likely go to Hezekiah's Tunnel. I went there. It's about five feet high. It's pitch dark. I showed the kids, Heather, last night the video. It's pitch dark. The water comes up to your knees, and it is frigid water, cold water. And it's 1,777 feet long, just winding. And what it does, it feeds that spring, and that water comes into a reservoir in Jerusalem. And so there's a reservoir within, you know, the, the walls of Jerusalem. And the enemy didn't know anything about Hezekiah's tunnel. And so they could assault all these water sources all they wanted, and yet they had this water supply. And so you walk through there like this today. But Hezekiah had created this. And so no matter what the siege, there was a stream that made glad the city of God. And the psalmist is using that as an analogy, as an illustration. There is a river. Whose streams make glad the city of God. It is God himself. Note the language. God is in the midst of her. God will help her. When morning dawns. That is when battles take place. He is the water supply. Now what's interesting. Is that. There's a real Trinitarian aspect to this. For instance, in Jeremiah 2.13, God the Father is depicted as the fountain of living water. In John chapter 4, Jesus describes himself as the living water of which you drink and will never thirst again. And in John chapter 7, he describes the Spirit as the river of living water. The Father is the fountain. The Spirit is the river. And what that river distributes is Christ himself, the living water. And like a secret aqueduct to a besieged city, God the Father comes to us through his Son, the living water, by his Spirit. And he makes glad the city of God. Even when the mountains are falling into the sea. Wayne and Vicki Mears told me this morning. That they've been reading the Psalms. To their children. The night of the tragedy. Wayne said he kept singing over and over in his mind. Standing on the promises. And he told us this morning that. The Psalms have come alive. For his family. 
What's happening there? God is making glad his people through that life-giving water. Indeed, notice verse 7 again. What a glorious truth this is. The Lord of hosts is with us. He is that water. If you're not drinking of that water, that is self-destruction. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Our fortress. You know, Old Testament battle stories have one of their common staples, fortresses. The first time we ever read about a fortress in Scripture is in 2 Samuel verse chapter 5. When David besieges Zion, Jerusalem, and captures it from the Jebusites. And he makes Jerusalem the capital city of Israel. Indeed, he makes it the central fortress in Israel. And so when David uses the language of fortress to describe his God, he's thinking in terms of security, of an impenetrable stronghold, place of safety. Now, David didn't write Psalm 46, but Psalm 46 and all the psalmists who followed David uses that same metaphor and thinks in the same way. God is our fortress. Indeed, because the emphasis in Scripture is on God as our fortress, it turns our eyes away from everything else that is untrustworthy and temporal and vain. I made this note in my Bible this morning as I was reflecting on this. True security is only found... And who will make us secure on our deathbed? The world is looking for for security and, and identity and pleasure and significance. And true happiness is only found in that which will make you happy on your deathbed. Because that day's coming. The mountains will fall into the sea eventually. And the psalmist is directing us back to the one who is enduring. He's directing us to another city, in other words. The new Jerusalem, described in Revelation 21 and 22. The final dwelling place of God's people. And interestingly, in that city there is a river that flows from the throne of God. And on each side of that river is the tree of life. And from that tree comes the leaves that will be for the healing of the nations. That's where our hope is. And in Revelation 22 it says, In that city no longer will there be anything accursed. We will no longer have to worry about death. And judgment. 
And this city will have a great high wall. It's a fortress. Revelation 21, 12. And nothing unclean will ever enter it. Including death. And the enemy will finally be conquered. He's already been conquered. His head was crushed on the cross. But like a chicken that's had his head cut off, he doesn't know it yet. And in that city, God will rule forever. Indeed, we see in the last part of this psalm, God our ruler. We've seen that God is our refuge. We have seen God is that life-giving river. Finally, we see God is our ruler. He's in control, whether we feel it or not. Look with me in verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Are you beholding the works of the Lord today? That's like cutting yourself off from oxygen if you're not. How do you behold the works of God? An open Bible. The psalmist is saying, when the mountains fall in the sea, if you're not beholding the works of God, you will fall with it. This is a command. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. What's interesting here, the word cease here, I love this word. It's the word from which we get the word Sabbath. In that day, Wars will go on a public or a permanent Sabbath. A permanent sabbatical. It recalls Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 2 where in that day he will, they will beat the swords into plowshares. All the utensils and instruments for war will no longer be used. No longer be needed. And they will turn the spears into pruning hooks. Of course, we know that presently, we still need military. Presently, there's still the need for law enforcement. And by extension, hospitals and physicians and nurses and medicine. But not in the day when the Lord brings a wrap-up to his new creation. Remember, there's power in the promises. And yet, even now, because of the finished work of the Prince of Peace, and what I mean by the finished work is he came and kept the terms of the covenant for us as our substitute so that we might have a righteous standing with God. And then suffered the curse of the cross as our substitute. So that we don't have to suffer the curse of the cross. And was raised from the grave as our substitute. Where God's verdict against us was reversed to God's verdict for us. And he was exalted to the right hand of God the Father as our substitute. Because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Prince of Peace. We now may bear the fruit of peace in this broken age. 
Because Christ has made us fit through his atoning work for his spirit to dwell in us. And the fruit of that spirit, the spirit who produces fruit in us, the fruit of peace, points forward to that day when we will experience it in an unencumbered way, in full. And no sooner is the promise of peace given than God himself, its guarantor, is heard to speak to the psalmist. And here's what he says in verse 10. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And when God's name is exalted, that benefits his people 100% of the time. Because it remains a reversal of brokenness. It means the sad things will come untrue. For those of us who are tired and weary, and we're tired and weary of suffering, aren't we? Isn't this comforting to know that the only thing we're told to do in this psalm is to behold his works and to be still and know that he's God. Elizabeth Elliot. She lost two husbands in tragic ways. The first was Jim Elliot, who was martyred by the Aka Indians in Ecuador as he was evangelizing them. The second was Addison Lech, his sec- her second husband, who slowly died of cancer. And there's some of you who've been here who've experienced that with your loved ones. And in describing what those difficulties were like, she referred to Psalm 46. And here's what she said in that first shock of death. Everything that has seemed most dependable has given way. Mountains are falling. Earth is reeling. In such a time, it is a profound comfort to know that although all things seem to be shaken, one thing is not. God is not shaken. And a lot of that, here's what she adds. Be still and know that God is God. God is God whether you presently feel that or not. Indeed, he closes out this chapter by repeating himself. Now, when the Hebrew repeats itself, it's for emphasis. It kind of drives home the main point. We saw in verse 1, he's the very present help in time of trouble. And we saw in verse 7, as we see here in verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Again, he's referring to those who are in covenant relationship with God. This is not true of every person. 
It's only true of those who have access to God through the atoning work of His Messiah. But for those that have access to God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, it can be said, the Lord of hosts is with you. Lord Sabaoth is his name, as we've saying. He's a warrior God. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You know, this psalm can be a stretch for us. Not because we don't believe and feel that sometimes the mountains are falling into the sea. We all believe that part. The stretch for us is the deep-rooted faith of the psalmist. That's the stretch for us. But that's why we need Scripture. Indeed, that's the point of Scripture. It addresses our frail and fallen condition with the grace of the text. The text is intended as a grace to address our fallen condition. This text is intended to exalt the Lord our God by stretching us and taking us to a place that we could not go by ourselves, in and of ourselves. And so... Let the psalmist be your tour guide. In the middle chapters. Chapters filled with dangerous toils and snares. But the chapters of a story that will indeed end happy ever after. And the faith that the psalmist had can be yours. And even more so. Because we happen to live in those middle chapters of the story after the cross. And after Pentecost. Where God the Spirit, the river of living water, has come to dwell in our hearts. But we also need to remember this psalm is for present and future. We wait for a future comprehensive deliverance. That awaits us. Our hearts long for that. Our hearts are hardwired for that perfect paradise because that's what we lost in the garden. There's a sense of nostalgia In every human heart. For what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Even the most ardent atheist. Is seeking to restore Eden in his heart. By his booze and drugs. We're hardwired for that day. But here is the good news. We don't have to wait. Until the end. To experience it. In part. Because having believed, we are marked in him with the the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. An inheritance of perfect paradise with God. So on one side, yes, we have trouble. And we will have trouble. 
There's coming a day when it feels, if it hasn't already happened, that the mountains are falling into the sea. But on the other side, there's an unshakable kingdom. That's our hope. And contrary to the feelings we often have, God, our refuge, is already on the move. And that should spur us to sing, our God is with us, Emmanuel. That's our hope this morning as we grieve. But it's a sure hope. Let's pray. Father, we just want to take a moment and be still and know that you are God. Inform our hurting and broken emotions and feelings this morning by that truth. May those promises from Scripture, the promises of Psalm 46, the promise of the gospel... Take dominion over our feelings and our emotions, which are fragile right now. We pray this for the Mears family as well. I pray that for everyone here that's lost loved ones over the past weeks and months. I pray that for families who have devastation going on in their family separation alienation we want to be still right now and just know that you're God the Lord of hosts is with us you are our refuge you are our strength and we know even better than the psalmist How gloriously true that is. Because when we deserved judgment, which makes Sennacherib's army pale in comparison, you became our fortress by diverting that judgment unto the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by doing so, you can be present with us as our covenant God. May we find our peace and grace in that this morning. As we lift up the mirrors and lift up the many who are in here suffering this morning because of their own losses. And Father, if there's anyone here today that's never trusted in Christ, they have no fortress But you will be their fortress if they will cry out to you through your son Jesus and confess their sins and forsake their sins and trust in Christ's atoning work for their sins. I pray today they could be saved. 
We ask these things today in the name of Christ, the living water, who makes glad our hearts this morning. Amen.